I'm your host, Jonathan Malaberti. Before we get to Beatles Part 10, please subscribe to Rock Bands Podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Bands Podcast and share us on social media with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Uh, Every share helps so much, so a special thank you to all of you who are sharing new episodes every week. You're amazing. Okay, let's get right to it. The Beatles Part 10. George Harrison was really starting to blossom musically. After a few years of indifference towards pop music and a deep interest in Indian music and philosophy, by late 1968, George was playing a lot less sitar and more guitar. As a consequence, George was writing a lot more songs. Now, it takes years to become a prolific songwriter. Usually composers have an awkward phase where they write a bunch of bad or mediocre songs and every once in a while, they write a good one. It can take years before a songwriter hits their stride and consistently writes good songs. Lennon-McCartney went through this phase in the 50s and early 60s and, of course, went on to become the greatest songwriting partnership in history, composing entire albums of classics. George didn't really start writing until 1968. He would often present one or two compositions that were so-so, and every now and then he would really wow people with songs like Taxman, If I Needed Someone, and While My Guitar Gently Weeps. But for every single great song George brought to a session, John and Paul brought an entire album of great songs. But suddenly George had this huge buildup of songs, and his list of potential compositions was getting longer and longer. But he knew that being in a band with Paul McCartney and John Lennon meant that he'd be lucky to get two of his songs on the next album. In the fall of 1968, a few months after the White Album was released, George Harrison and his wife, Patty, traveled to Woodstock, New York to visit Bob Dylan and the band. For those of you who aren't too familiar with the band, they're a Canadian-American band who throughout the 60s worked as a backing band for Ronnie Hawkins, and famously, uh, they backed Bob Dylan when he went electric in 1966 and they were booed by angry folk fans at pretty much every show. In 1968, they met up with Bob Dylan in Woodstock, New York, got a house, and started working on writing their first solo album. Away from big cities and the music industry, in Woodstock, they wrote their classic album, Music from Big Pink. This was, and still is, a really special album. The band is uniquely talented. They played on the road for like 10 years before making their first album, kind of like the Beatles. They had a blend of country, soul, blues, rockabilly, folk. All five of them were insanely gifted musicians, and their vocal section is almost unparalleled in rock and roll. Eric Clapton scored an advanced copy of music from Big Pink and showed George, and the two of them were absolutely entranced. This album had no psychedelia, no time for jamming or flash. It was all soulful, beautiful, real music. George couldn't wait to go out to Woodstock and pick their brains about songwriting, recording, and everything in between. The band's guitarist and songwriter Robbie Robertson said of George coming to Woodstock, quote, He came to visit me and met a couple of the other guys. He wanted to see what was real. Like, what do they do up in those mountains? He wanted to hang out and have some of this rub off on him, unquote. What George saw absolutely blew his mind. The band wasn't just good musically, they were a team. 
They worked on songs together. Even though Robbie Robertson was the primary writer, he never sang. He brought a song and the other musicians would add their parts and feed off of each other musically. And shockingly, they had fun doing it. This was very different from the tense recording sessions George had just spent half a year experiencing with his band. In the Beatles, if you wrote a song, you told people what to do. You ran the session and you sang it. There wasn't a ton of room for collaboration, especially if you were George, who was kind of still considered a, to be a junior member of the band by Paul and John. Robertson said of this, quote, George spoke incredibly candidly about the problems within the Beatles. John, he said, was far out on a limb, testing his balance. And our dear friend Ringo was following in the tradition of many a hard-drinking Brit. Apparently, he had threatened to quit the band at one point. George was quick to admit that there was serious tension between Paul and him. Whenever I present a tune, George said, the Lennon-McCartney songwriting team will ignore it as long as they can. Sometimes I even have to fight for my guitar parts. Paul has such a clear idea of how the song should go that he tells me what to play or he wants to play it himself, unquote. George and Patty spent Thanksgiving at Bob Dylan's house, and George just really enjoyed taking in the simple, collaborative environment, and he spent much of his time strumming an acoustic with the members of the band and Bob Dylan. When George was in Woodstock, he really felt like he was an equal. George actually wrote a few songs about his time in Woodstock. He began writing All Things Must Pass, which was a song inspired by the band's song, The Wait. George actually wrote All Things Must Pass uh, with Levon Helm, the band's drummer and singer, in mind. He thought that it would be a beautiful song for Levon to sing. All Things Must Pass was rehearsed, but never seriously recorded by the Beatles. George also wrote I'd Have You Anytime, which was a song about Bob Dylan and his distance from George at the time. Uh, Bob was acting kind of weird for much of the Woodstock trip, and George wrote a song pleading with Bob uh, to let him in, let him back into his heart. Both songs would appear on his first solo album, Post Beatles. Back home in England, the Beatles world was consumed by Apple. The company was having a lot of financial difficulties due to the lack of organization and proper leadership, but this was supposed to be kept on the down low. John Lennon accidentally told a reporter about these financial problems, saying, quote, We haven't got half the money people think we have. We have enough to live on, but we can't let Apple go on like this, unquote. Magic Alex was heading the Apple Electronics division and saying that he was in the middle of building them a highly advanced recording studio. However, this would soon prove to be a pretty big waste of time and money. Paul and George were probably most occupied by producing and writing songs for Apple Records' new signings. Apple Records signed acts like James Taylor, Billy Preston, Jackie Lomax, Joe Cocker, Badfinger, and a bunch of others from the period to 68 to the early 70s. Paul and George were by far the most interested in this part of Apple, and the two of them became really skilled producers and often wrote for these bands or added musical parts. Uh, the biggest challenge, though, was their grandiose philosophy behind Apple Corps. Remember, they wanted it to be, quote, Western communism, the music industry for the little man. Just a year in, the, the Apple offices were absolutely overflowing with demos and auditions from anyone and their brother who wanted to be famous. There was simply no way to listen to all these tapes, especially considering just how much money was being wasted and blown away. Of course, John and Yoko were still very much a package deal, 
but they had been having some ups and downs lately. Uh, Both of them were on-again, off-again users of heroin at this point, so you never quite knew which John and Yoko you were going to get. They could be clean and energetic, they could be on cloud nine, or they could be sick, tired, and cranky. They were also dealing with the legal mess and bad press of their recent drug bust in October of 1968. The two were living in Jimi Hendrix's old flat in London, where they were busted for possession of marijuana. John and Yoko were also grieving the loss of their unborn child. Sadly, Yoko suffered a miscarriage a few weeks after their drug bust. Paul also had a pretty significant life change. Since having been dumped by Jane Asher, he ended his relationship with Francie Schwartz. He then began seriously dating the American rock and roll photographer Linda Eastman, who he actually met a year earlier and had seen sporadically since. Linda Eastman was divorced and had a child already, but something about her in particular made the only Beatle never to marry think about settling down. Around the time of the White Album's release, the two became really serious, and Linda, of course, became the great love of Paul McCartney's life. Paul also started to bring Linda into the studio in a not-so-subtle effort to counter the weight of Yoko Ono's presence. Just a few months after the Beatles put the finishing touches on the White Album, they were of course thinking about getting back to work. Now obviously at this point there were varying degrees of interest in the Beatles uh, within the band. Ringo had already temporarily quit the band at one point and he continued to resent how much time he had to spend away from his family. However, he was particularly keen on the lifestyle uh, of drinking and women that Beatledom afforded him, which was kind of starting to be a crutch for the drummer. George didn't feel like his work was being taken seriously. He wanted to be treated equally and to have a more collaborative experience with music making, much like what he saw in Woodstock. John was losing interest in the Beatles by the day. He was so involved with Yoko and he wanted to make art with her, not with Paul, Ringo, or George. Paul was really the only one who had no second thoughts about the Beatles. In fact, he was really trying to steer the ship away from a breakup, which he felt like was starting to appear. In typical Paul fashion, he felt the way to do this was to refocus the band, re-energize the Fab Four with an ambitious project. His idea was to return to the live show. Ever since the Beatles' final performance in the August of 1966, there was pretty much a never-ending speculation about their return to the stage. The few times they had performed in a somewhat live fashion, like when they played All You Need Is Love on satellite TV, or when they played Revolution and Hey Jude on the David Frost show a few months prior, there was a definite sense of energy in the band that had been lacking. They had a good time when they played, they were thrilled with each other. Paul felt that if they wanted to get back to playing live, they would once again be thrilled with each other. Uh, Paul wanted to, quote, get back to their roots as a rock and roll band. The rest of the band was sort of lukewarm and kind of lazily agreeing to the idea of doing one, maybe two shows of new Beatles materials, definitely not a tour, at some point in the winter of 1969. There was some buzz about where they could do these potential shows, maybe in front of the pyramids of Giza in Egypt, uh, or what about the Royal Albert Hall in London? The favorite idea was to play a show at sunrise at a Roman amphitheater in Tunisia, Africa. The band didn't agree or decide for sure where they'd be playing or where they'd be going or even if they'd be playing, but they decided to meet just after New Year's 1969 to begin rehearsal for the Get Back project. The Beatles convened at Twickenham Film Studios on January 2nd, 1969. 
While the music they played here would eventually become the Let It Be album released a year later, at the time they were not intending to record an album, so they decided not to play at Abbey Road. Twickenham was a big, cavernous, and cold room with no character. It felt like a big garage. Uh, This was actually the studio where the Rolling Stones filmed their Rock and Roll Circus the previous year, and where John Lennon played a live version of Your Blues with Eric Clapton on lead guitar, Keith Richards on bass, Mitch Mitchell on drums, uh, in a one-off band that they called The Dirty Mac. They also didn't really want a producer for this project, so they asked Glyn Johns, uh, one of the top record producers in England who worked with The Who, The Stones, to join the project not as a producer but as head record engineer. George Martin, still wary of the band after their falling out during the White Album sessions, was very passively involved with this project. John Lennon actually point-blank said to George Martin that they didn't want his, quote, production shit on this project. We want this to be an honest album, unquote. While this was obviously pretty rude, I kind of understand what John meant. They were rehearsing for a live performance. The band wasn't really thinking about overdubs and all that stuff. They wanted to arrange music that could be played live. George Martin was still present from time to time and worked well with Glyn Johns, keeping his bruised ego out of the way of the music. The other curveball about the Get Back project was that the Beatles were going to be filmed for pretty much the entire rehearsal. Another one of Paul's ideas, since they were going to be filming a live show, they wanted to include some footage from the rehearsals as well. They hired the American filmmaker Michael Lindsay Hogg to direct it. The band had worked with Michael Lindsay Hogg uh, before on some music videos. The film crew's presence also meant that the Beatles had to adjust their normal nocturnal schedules and start showing up in the morning around 10 or 11. The cold, musty environment, along with kind of the aimless direction of the project and the awkward tension that was still carrying over from the White Album, coupled with the near-constant presence of a film crew, was a weird change for the Beatles, and this was a band who really valued privacy so much, and normally the only place where they got it was in the studio. And from the beginning of the Get Back sessions, it was clear that not much had changed since the White Album. Rehearsals for the Get Back project began on January 2nd. Each Beatle brought with them a few new songs to introduce. John's first song was his love song for Yoko, Don't Let Me Down. He also brought Dig a Pony, which at this point were both just chords and words, not really worked out yet. George brought All Things Must Pass and Let It Down to the first session, both songs that wouldn't be released until his solo career. And Paul brought I've Got a Feeling. However, the first days are kind of lacking structure, and probably most of the time the band is just jamming or playing covers. There are a lot of instances of George playing a band song, like I Shall Be Released, or Tears of Rage, or To Kingdom Come, and the rest of the band following in behind him until it breaks down. You can actually hear some of this stuff on YouTube, it's pretty awesome. In early January, though, there wasn't a lot of direction. A lot of the songs again, broke down because someone forgot the chords, recording problems, or it was just a couple minutes of fun. For example, sometimes Ringo would belly up to the piano and someone would go on drums and they'd just fool around. One of the first songs that they really spent a lot of time on uh, is George's All Things Must Pass. However, after a few hours, the band's interest in the song starts to wane and much of the first few days are spent aimlessly jamming, playing cover songs like 
stuck inside a mobile with the Memphis Blues again, and bits and pieces of original compositions like the Sun King, which wouldn't surface until Abbey Road. After a few days, the Beatles are pretty annoyed that the rehearsals have gotten nowhere. A really important conversation that happened on January 7th is actually about the details of the live show, and it revealed just how fragmented the band's thinking about the project was. The conversation was mainly between Paul, director Michael Lindsay Hogg, and Yoko Ono, and it was about what they should do. Now, Michael Lindsay Hogg and George Martin think that they should take a more traditional route and play a normal concert at a normal concert venue. Yoko is on the other side lobbying for Beatles, as she calls them, to play in front of nobody in an empty venue as some sort of dramatic artistic statement. Paul is somewhere in the middle trying to be diplomatic about the situation and have a productive conversation, careful not to alienate Yoko. Most interesting about this conversation is actually the group dynamic and who is saying what, rather than what they're actually talking about. Ringo, who is completely silent through the conversation, has only one condition, and that is not to leave the country because he has to film a movie and doesn't want to be away from his family for too long. George is kind of in and out of the conversation. John is also completely silent, while Yoko is loud and proud about her views, overriding George Martin and Michael Lindsay Hogg. There's actually a great analysis of this conversation on my friend Matt Williamson's YouTube channel, Pop Goes the 60s. You can hear the actual recording of this moment and Matt's take in his video, Eavesdropping on the Beatles, Exposing Let It Be Narratives, episode 60. So go check that out. The band continues to play a mixture of covers, jams, and originals. They start working a lot on Paul's A Long and Winding Road and Let It Be. Let It Be is a song which came to Paul when he was sleeping. He had a dream that his late mother told him that everything would be all right, that he should just let it be. Many people think that Mother Mary in the song is a religious reference, but it's actually a reference to his mother, Mary McCartney. Again, a lot of takes that were attempted were pretty sloppy and unusable, so the band continued on playing dozens of different bits and pieces of this, no structure in sight, and the band members are growing more and more restless as they bounce from piece of song to piece of song without really getting a feel for them. Paul is really the only one who seems to be giving this project his all, and a lot of the arguments in these sessions are about the lack of interest and the aimlessness. Here is some dialogue Peter Doggett transcribed to illustrate this point. Paul, we've only got 12 more days, so we've got to do this methodically. I just hear myself saying it. I never get any support. What do you think? John, about what? George, hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. Ringo, I'm not interested. Paul, I don't see why any of you, if you're not interested, get yourselves into this. What's it for? It can't be for the money. Why are you here? I'm here because I want to do a show, but I really don't feel an awful lot of support. I, fe I feel terrible. To John, imagine if you were the only one interested. You don't say anything. John, I've said what I've been thinking. Paul, there's only two choices. We're going to do it or we're not going to do it. And I want a decision because I'm not interested in spending my fucking days farting about here while everyone makes up their mind whether they want to do it or not. I'll do it. If everyone else wants to do it, great. But I don't have to be here. We should just have it out. If this one turns out to be like the last album, it should definitely be the last. For all of us, there's no point in hanging on. George, the Beatles have been in the doldrums for at least a year. Maybe we should get a divorce. Paul, well, I said that in the last meeting. It's getting near it. 
Now, while this was a particularly ominous conversation that happened between the four Beatles, it's kind of representative of the conversations that the Beatles started to have about their future. But the tension bubbling at the edges during the band's first week of rehearsals comes to a sudden boiling point when a second Beatle quits the band. While George was known for having kind of a negative attitude towards the Beatles and complaining a lot during this period, he actually went into the Get Back sessions with a bit of optimism. He thought the Beatles could make music like the band did as a team, and the stripped-back approach might facilitate that. George brought a ton of songs to the sessions. Uh, All Things Must Pass, Isn't It a Pity, Hear Me Lord, For You Blue, I Me Mine, etc., However, between the jamming and his current status as a junior songwriter in the Beatles, he felt like his songs weren't really being given the time of day. At one point, McCartney point-blank said he felt George's songs weren't as good as John and his, which at the time was true, but it definitely hurt George and didn't ease the tensions. During the rehearsal of Paul's Two of Us, which was originally arranged as an electric song, Paul and George got into a pretty heated exchange about approaching the song. Uh, George is trying to figure out a guitar part, and Paul just wants to get the basic chords and rhythm figured out before they get any more complicated. The exchange ends with George very sarcastically saying, quote, Okay, well, I don't mind. I'll play whatever you want me to play. Or I won't play at all if you don't want me to play. Whatever it is that will please you, I'll do it, unquote. George commented about how he was feeling during the sessions, quote, I had spent the last few months producing an album by Jackie Lomax and hanging out in Woodstock having a great time. For me to come into the winter of discontent with the Beatles and Twickenham was very unhealthy and unhappy. I think the first couple of days were okay, but it was soon quite apparent that it was just going to be the same as it had been when we were in the studio last. It was going to be painful again, unquote. The final straw for George was actually not an argument with Paul, but with John, which occurred on January 10th. After a pretty productive morning, all things considered, the Beatles settled down for lunch. But George was fuming mad, presumably about John's drugged-out demeanor and his new inability to speak without Yoko Ono. George very abruptly said that he was quitting the band, to everyone's shock, quote, You can replace me. Put an ad in the New Musical Express and get a few people in. See you around the clubs, unquote. George left the studio, went home, and wrote another song, Wawa, about the situation, another song that wouldn't surface until his solo career. In George's absence, the Beatles got to jamming. John started playing The Who's A Quick One While He's Away, which turned into a really heavy, hard rock jam session with Yoko shrieking hysterically over the drums, bass, and guitar. John, who was trying not to cave to George, suggested that they get Eric Clapton to replace him and carry on the Beatles without George Harrison. However, there was part of John that understood George's anger, and acknowledged that George's status in the band was a legitimate cause of resentment. John said around this time, quote, It's only this year that George has realized who he is, and all the fucking shit we've done to him, unquote. The Beatles were kind of lost musically, and George leaving was just another sign for them. For some reason, they couldn't find the chemistry that was so effortless for them on Revolver. There was a disconnect within the band. They became really nitpicky and microscopic about their individual parts, and lazy and just indifferent about their music. And Paul, who was really just trying to get the group grooving and figure out 
their parts later, was often demonized for being overly authoritarian, which sometimes was fair. Paul was definitely controlling and had a strong vision, but sometimes it wasn't fair. In January of 1969, the Beatles were just so discordant. Over a week after George walked out and after a failed attempt to get him back, John, Ringo, and Paul decided to give in to some of George's demands. In order to get George back in the band so they could finish up their project, George agreed to rejoin the band only if they dropped the idea of playing a live show, especially not in some far-off place, and instead rehearse material so that they could make an album. He also wanted to move studios and leave the cold, cavernous Twickenham and instead go to the basement of their Savile Row office where Magic Alex was building their state-of-the-art studio. George also pushed to get their friend and outrageously talented keyboard player, Billy Preston, to join them in the studio. Not only did George want Billy there to ease the tension, but he was also, again, emulating the band, who had a truly amazing organist in Garth Hudson, which was vital to their sound. The rest of the Beatles agreed, and with this new set of rules, George Harrison was back in the band. Around January 20th, the Beatles finally got to see what their friend Magic Alex was building for them at Savile Row. After two weeks of aimless jamming and less than stellar rehearsals, the Beatles were now getting a bit antsy and really wanted to buckle down. They were expecting, as Magic Alex had advertised, a state-of-the-art futuristic recording studio that really had no precedent in England. What they found was a very lackluster studio, and it was actually unusable, so unusable that they had to have equipment brought over from EMI uh, at Abbey Road. Probably a big win in George Martin's book, since they'd made the studio to one-up EMI in the first place. After another unsatisfactory day of jamming, Billy Preston made his first appearance on January 22nd, and his presence made an immediate difference. Since they weren't overdubbing, Preston was a Beatle for the time being, playing live with them in the studio. The band was in awe of him musically, and his presence at the sessions really made them bring their A-game. The mood was also greatly improved, and the Beatles tightened up their playing and loosened up their attitudes, and really started to have a good time. They finally got a satisfactory take of Dig a Pony, I've Got a Feeling, and Don't Let Me Down, with Billy adding really smooth keyboard parts to each. Uh, these takes were actually so satisfactory they were considered good enough to be featured on the future album. The next few days, they went on to play Paul's Get Back a whole lot, along with a bunch of covers and songs that would be held over uh, for the Abbey Road sessions. They also completely overhauled Two of Us and changed it to a folky country acoustic song with a jumpy bass instead of the hard rock electric version it started off as. They also got to work on George's For You Blue and Paul's Let It Be, The Long and Winding Road, and John's Across the Universe. Finally, in late January of 1969, the Beatles started seriously playing together again. But lingering over all of these sessions slash rehearsals is the question of whether or not the band is going to play a live show. They hadn't nailed anything down yet, but they had publicly said that they were going to do it. But George really didn't want to, and John and Ringo really didn't see the point. But Michael Lindsay Hogg had filmed virtually the entire rehearsing process, and it would have been a massive waste of money and energy to just do nothing. So Paul kept pushing them to do something. They couldn't decide on a venue, and frankly, there was no enthusiasm to go somewhere and play, even if it was in London. 
On January 29th, they sort of half agreed that the next day they'd play a few of their new songs on the roof of the Savile Row offices. George was vocal about his reluctance to do so, Ringo was indifferent, Paul was all for it, and John, kind of the tie-breaking vote, for some reason got a burst of excitement and decided that he was in. The film crew and equipment crew set up the stage on the roof, and on the really cold, foggy, bleak afternoon of January 30th, the Fab Four, some of their wives, the film crew, and other members of their entourage made their way to the top of the building. Paul was wearing a suit, John was wearing a fur coat and played his tan Epiphone Sheridan, George wore a black fur coat, green pants, and played the iconic Rosewood Telecaster, one of the most beautiful guitars that I think exists, and George wore a red raincoat. Billy Preston set up his keyboard off to the side. Kind of nervous and cold at first, they kicked off their performance with Get Back and started to get warmed up. John actually takes the guitar solo on this one, followed by a great keyboard break by Billy Preston. They follow this with a bit of a jam on I Want You, She's So Heavy, which was a song that was in its early days at this point and they would really work on for Abbey Road, and then into another version of Get Back, before landing on John's touching Don't Let Me Down. People in London start gathering in front of the offices, unsure of what kind of noise they're hearing. People in nearby buildings are kind of pressing themselves uh, against the windows to get a glimpse. People are rushing to the roof to see uh, if they could see the Beatles from a distant rooftop. Most people can't see the Beatles, and the sound is kind of so-so given the windy conditions. But the Beatles then launched into I've Got a Feeling and One After 909. Actually, one of the first songs that John and Paul wrote together in Liverpool was One After 909. They follow this with a performance of Dig a Pony and a couple more takes of Get Back and Don't Let Me Down. They ended the 45-minute performance visibly freezing with one final take of Get Back. After more than a couple reports that the police were going to arrest the Beatles if they didn't stop, John briefly assumed his leadership role again on stage and ends the show by jokingly saying, quote, I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition, unquote. Just like that, on the 30th of January, 1969, the Beatles performed for the last time ever in public, putting an end to the dreaded Get Back project. But it's true, as sort of negative as the Beatles were during the stage, uh, John and Paul really seem to be vibing on stage and smiling, and the band seems to be feeding off of each other. This is actually, to me, a really special moment, not only because it's the Beatles' last public performance, but I think there is just uh, an immediate chemistry that uh, started as soon as the Beatles plugged in, and if they ever got the chance to perform in the 70s once again, I think it would have been a truly magical thing to experience. Now, a lot has been said about the Get Back sessions, and a lot of it is really negative. A lot of this negativity is because of the Let It Be film that came out, showing the Beatles fighting pretty much at every turn. However, there's a new movie coming out in August directed by Peter Jackson that is apparently challenging this gloomy narrative, and it shows the Beatles not at each other's throats for these sessions, but uh, all the moments where they were having fun like the Beatles typically did. Beatle historian Mark Lewison also challenges the dark narrative and argues that careful listening to the tapes proves that the Beatles were not fighting the whole time, but more of the time they were in good moods and, you know, acting like the Beatles did, joking, witty, quick. Uh, it's important to remember that while there was this tension, this awkwardness, these egos and these business concerns, uh, and surely a lot of fighting, 
These were four people that were still as close as a family, and even at their lowest moments, uh, they were still having a good time. I mean, think about it. How miserable can it really be to be a rock star millionaire in your 20s making music with your friends? However, Get Back Sessions did aggravate the cracks in the band. George's songwriting, Paul's creative process, John's withdrawal and drug use, and Ringo's indifference. The Beatles weren't all that satisfied with the material worked out for the Get Back sessions, and decided not to release the album that Glyn Johns had presented them with. Instead, they quickly got to work on their next project, a studio album which would end up being their last studio album. After the Beatles' breakup, Get Back was released in 1970, after producer Phil Spector overhauled it, and the album was renamed Let It Be. Now, they didn't know it at the time, but the music that they made in January 1969 would end up being their swan song. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. I hope you enjoyed Beatles Part 10. Next week, we're going to talk about Abbey Road and one of the most hated figures in Beatles history, also one of the most important, Mr. Alan Klein. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Bands Podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Until next week, listen to the Beatles and Abbey Road.